0: Thank you. Welcome to In Sync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host Rachel Brodsky,
1: and I am also your host Aviv Rubenstein.
0: Since its premiere in November 2021, Showtimes Yellow Jackets has developed a major cult following.
1: It's a mystery thriller created by Ashley Lyle and Bart Nickerson, and Yellow Jackets stars an unparalleled ensemble cast that is ostensibly about a group of teenagers involved in a plane crash in 1996 playing out over two timelines we right Yellow Jackets, named for the teens' doomed high school soccer team, explores what the crash survivors must do to survive in the Canadian wilderness and how, even after their rescue, their older counterparts are coping more than 25 years later.
0: Not only has Yellow Jackets spawned a dizzying number of Reddit threads with fans hunting for clues and Easter eggs as to just what the hell is happening to the stranded teens in the 1996 timeline and their adult counterparts in the present day timeline, the show has also earned major props from fans and critics for its use of music. Craig Wendron and Anna Warrenker, members of the rock band Shudder to Think and That Dog, respectively, composed the very 90s alt-rock theme song No Return, and season one features era-specific needle drops ranging from Liz Phair's Supernova to The Smashing Pumpkin's Today, Alanis Morissette's Uninvited. Salt and Peppa's Shoop, Hell yeah. Pole's Miss World, Throwing Muses, Counting Backwards, and so much more. Today, Aviva and I will talk about a few great music moments in season two, which just wrapped on Showtime. And we're feeling particularly drawn to episode two, Edible Complex, which features a pivotal use of Radiohead's climbing up the walls.
1: So, why was climbing up the walls the perfect needle drop to accompany that scene? And why are we being so vague about what went down on screen while Radiohead was played?
0: Who is Yellow Jacket's new music supervisor, Nora Felder, who came in for season two? And what did she have to say about the Radiohead song to Screen Sync?
1: All this and more burning questions on this episode of NSYNC.
0: You won't be hungry much longer. Than-
1: So here's a TLDR on Yellowjackets. Spoiler warning. So many spoilers. If you haven't seen anything or you're waiting to start season two for like a binge, we're going to spoil some things up to and including maybe episode five of season two. And for those of you Yellowjacket heads, we're recording this episode a couple eps shy of the season two finale. So if there's an incredible music moment or plot point that happens at the end of season two, we'll just have to do a follow up episode.
0: Yeah. For the record. There were too many great music moments in season two to choose from. We will mention some of our favorites in addition to the Radiohead Needle Drop in episode two.
1: There's one in episode seven that really gave it a run for its money. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Okay, so... Yellow Jackets is about a team of soccer players in 1996 heading to Nationals. They're involved in a plane crash. They're lost in the deciduous wilderness. The series (laughs) opens with someone being hunted, killed, and eaten. And the the cannibals are led by a woman with an obscured face wearing antlers on her head. The show cuts back and forth between the mid-90s and the present day when the surviving rescued members of the Yellow Jackets are thrown back into intrigue and mystery when one of the survivors, Travis, hangs himself in an extremely mysterious way, and a journalist starts asking questions about what really happened in the wilderness for those 19 months. The main players are as follows. Shauna, played in the past by Canadian actor Sophie Nelisse, and in the present by Kiwi, as in from New Zealand, Melanie Linsky. Shauna's pregnant with the baby of her best friend's boyfriend, so that's not great
0: yeah we're off to an awesome start (laughs) bad start yeah
1: the best friend in question is jackie played by english actor ella Purnell, and is it's pretty obvious from like the first episode that jackie does not make it back to new jersey with the rest of the team so there's no adult jackie we've got thaisa who is the scream franchises jasmine savoy brown in the past and tawny cypress in the present both versions of whom are played with visions and voices of a man with no eyes Tice's girlfriend, Van, the goalie, played by Australian Liv Houston in the past, and new for this season, Rachel's favorite, Lauren Ambrose, in the present. She is my favorite. Van nearly gets her face ripped off by a wolf halfway through the first season and sports some gnarly scars. There's Misty, a tryhard dork in the past, who finds and destroys the flight recorder for the airplane after the crash because she likes feeling needed by the rest of the team. Samantha Hanratty in the past. And she has grown up into, like, this black widow, night nurse, true crime obsessed murderer, impeccably played by Christina Ricci. The troubled, abused hunter Natalie, played in the past by Sophie Thatcher, who is American, but does a convincing enough British slash Australian accent in The Mandalorian that I thought she was actually from Australia. And in the present, played by the other sister herself, Juliette Lewis.
0: (laughs) Do you think Juliette Lewis wants to scratch the other sister from her resume?
1: I believe she does. In fact, yes. Incidentally, Juliet Lewis was the last person cast for the show because finding adult Natalie proved to be pretty difficult. It's Natalie's on again, off again, boyfriend, Travis, and his mysterious death that sort of proves to be the MacGuffin that sets the whole series in motion, at least in the present. And last but not least, there's Lottie. Aussie Courtney Eaton in the past. And, and from moment one, we see Lottie taking antipsychotic medication, then running out of that medication after the crash. We get rare glimpses into her psychosis, but by season two, we realize that her visions are leading her to become the leader of the yellow jackets. And everyone presumes the woman with the antlers
0: the antler queen all the hell antler the queen. antler queen right
1: what's still unclear however is whether those visions are true or not
0: that is an interesting common thread throughout all of yellow jackets is it's constantly playing with the audience there are rationalizations for both there is an entity in the woods that has followed them into yeah. their adult life or are they just Heavily traumatized.
1: Heavily traumatized. Starving is made a little bit more difficult when Misty doses the team with magic mushrooms toward the end of season one. And that scene devolves into like an animalistic orgy. There's a ton more characters we could talk about. Their closeted gay coach and a true crime obsessed love interest for adult Misty played by Elijah Wood. Uh, But we only have so much time. I mentioned, by the way, everyone's nationalities or most people's nationalities because the like Accent management on this show is extremely intense.
0: Say more about that.
1: Well, so we have a lot of Brits and Aussies and there are only a few characters who are playing the same nationality as their counterpart. So Sophie Thatcher and Juliet Lewis are both American, but young Shauna is Canadian, adult Shauna is from New Zealand. Van, young Van, Liv Houston is Australian. Lauren Ambrose is American. So not only do people have to kind of drop their accents, but they have to manage the speaking style of their counterpart.
0: I'd like to point out yeah. how brilliant. I mean, I know I'm a Lauren Ambrose fan, She's but great.
1: it's it's impeccable
0: watching her capture her younger counterparts as we've only seen what like the younger van and mm-hmm. then and Lauren Ambrose is like capturing of like the speaking style, the gestures.
1: It's not over. None of the characters are overwrought. So typically in movies, you will be able to identify a young person who has grown up into an old person because they will wear the exact same haircut and glasses. And that doesn't really happen in this because that's not the way real life works. The closest thing... You get to that as Misty, who has similar hair and similar glasses, but uh every actor has picked up the subtle tendencies of their counterpart, and I think the Natalies are better in this season because they have had more time to examine each other, though I'm on record now at least as not being a huge fan of Juliet Lewis in this show, I think that she she's kind of on a different show than everybody else <laughs> but uh but young young natalie is incredible all the all the young actors are like pitch perfect
0: i don't disagree with that take i'd have to think about it a little bit more but i can see why you feel that way yeah yeah
1: so we only have so much time and i want to dive in a little bit on how the show got made because i think this is a super interesting story it all started in 2017 with a bad idea
0: (laughs) as so many good things do exactly
1: exactly so on august 31st of 2017 a simpler time the hollywood trades reported that an all-female remake of the lord of the flies was being developed as a feature film do you remember this
0: i really don't remember that no but i think i was probably following tv a little less closely I mean, then
1: i remember this very vividly because at the time i was developing a kind of a remake or an interpolation of lord of the flies and i was like well shit <laughs> we were also doing a lot oh, of no, oh no, oh
0: we were, I, I'm trying to say it, nor and oh nor, as the as the TikTok
1: kids say. Yeah. At this time, we were we were doing a lot of gender flipped remakes. The Ghostbusters answer the call had come out the year before. Mm-hmm. Ocean's Eight was about a year away. So the Internet jumped into action and proceeded to dunk on this for being just a horrible idea and kind of missing the point of the original Lord of the Flies, which is a lot about toxic masculinity. And around this time, like about a week later, the New Yorker published a piece. Called excerpts from the all-girl remake of *Lord of the Flies*.
0: Is this a Daily Shouts?
1: <laughs> it is a Daily Shouts, and it's so funny that I I thought same with like the the website design. When I went back to look for this, I thought it was a McSweeney's.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, Daily Shouts are basically. I don't. I don't know what. I mean. I guess Daily Shouts came first, but yeah, um, they must right. They, yeah, they um, they exist in the a similar universe.
1: But yeah, I remember yeah. reading this at the time, and so I thought it would be a fun idea to look up. This article, and we can do some dramatic readings of excerpts of excerpts from the all-girl remake of *Lord of the Flies*. This is by Rianne Conk. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go for it.
0: My auntie told me not to run. The girl called Piggy said, on account of my asthma. Asthma? Uh, yeah. Replied Piggy, assuming she must have misheard. Asthma, like it's hard to breathe. Wait. Oh my god, Ralphie said, rummaging through her purse. This is random, but I think I actually, yeah, here it is. I totally have an inhaler. It's just been sitting in here since I had bronchitis last year. You can have it.
1: Okay, this is from a little later on. We need meat, Jackie said. The Littletons have had nothing but fruit for days. I'm a vegetarian, said Ralphie, so I'm honestly fine. Jackie rolled her eyes. Yeah, I think you've mentioned it, but the rest of us would really like to not die from protein deficiency. That's a common misconception, actually, Ralphie offered. There are a lot of ways to get protein without needing meat. Yeah, Simone added. I mean, I eat meat, but I've read that it's actually great for the environment and for your health to have at least one meat-free day a week. So that's what I'm thinking of this as. Jackie was annoyed, but stopped herself from saying something rude. Hadn't she just been talking with her therapist about how she's always sabotaged her new relationships? Okay, she nodded. You're right. Back home, she started a blog about what she had learned from her weeks going vegan. Her friends all secretly agreed that it was insufferable. But also that at least she hadn't murdered any of them and started worshipping a pig god.
0: And another thing Jackie said. This is like a
1: little later on. And
0: another thing Jackie said. Should we have a rule that whoever has the conch gets to speak? You know, so no one gets interrupted. But who, ventured Simone, is here to interrupt us? The girls looked around. It was true. There was no one. They left the conch on the beach. Later, when they were rescued, the group agreed that Mora should take it home, since she was so crafty and could probably do something neat with it. Mora painted it seafoam green and used it to store jewelry, which eventually inspired her to open her own Etsy shop which was moderately successful.
1: This one's my favorite. (laughs) Simone staggered out of the woods. Her hair matted and muddy. She wore a crude garment that she had fashioned out of leaves, and her eyes were wild. Simone, cried Roger. I love your dress. Thanks, Simone said, gesturing. It has pockets.
0: (laughs) Okay, and a little later. And that, concluded Sam, is how Matt Damon broke up with Minnie Driver on Oprah. Ralphie wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and how she would never watch Goodwill Hunting the same way ever again.
1: So, Rachel. Yes. I thought this would be like a fun diversion in our episode. I love it. But what do you notice about these excerpts?
0: Well, first, they're not taking place in the 90s. So I guess that wasn't a feature yet.
1: Yeah, this doesn't directly have anything to do with Yellowjackets.
0: Right. It's just like, what if a bunch of teen girls were stranded on an island? So it does make
1: me... Lord of the Flies, yeah. So
0: it makes me think of Wilds. The Wilds. Did you see that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I didn't see it because it came out around the same time as Yellowjackets, and I was like, I had made my choice.
0: (laughs) Um, Season one was good. Uh, Season two, I feel less sure about. So... Hmm. That's that's really what this reminded me of the most. Or that there's a show that just came out, Class of 07, so it reminds me a little bit of that. Oh, yeah, Class of 09. No, 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 Class of 07.
1: That's not the Kate Mara show?
0: No, no, I'm talking about the Australian show, Class of 07, with, I cannot remember any of their names, (laughs) because I didn't research it ahead of time, and I'm normally really bad at names, but the terrifying girl from the movie Smile is in it. Oh, sure. And the
1: one that looks like all the other Australian
0: actors. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. And she's great. She plays an excellent reformed mean girl who has to Mm. be mean again in order to survive. But that's what this like dramatic rating is kind of reminding me of.
1: It's weird. It's weird that there's a class of 07 and a class of 09.
0: I know. And seemingly no relate because I haven't I haven't seen. That's
1: about the FBI.
0: Right. Right. Because class of 09 isn't about a reunion. Right.
1: No. I think it just takes place in three different time periods. That's okay. what I gather from the billboard that's on Santa Monica. And, and Virgil. Virgil.
0: I've also passed it.
1: <laughs> but what jumped out to me reading this is there's a Jackie.
0: Oh, yeah. You caught it. Yes.
1: There's a, there's a Jackie in this. And I feel like there's a Simone and a Sophie in yellow jackets but i'm not positive.
0: Not sure about Simone. Sophie feel like that could be like a peripheral character. Yeah,
1: i think so. But also the last one that we read was about Goodwill Hunting and right. what and what year did Goodwill Hunting come out?
0: 96. 97. 97. 97, yeah. 97.
1: And i didn't mean to kind of all the president's men this episode, but i i kind of believe that this was the true inspiration for yellow jackets this also isn't really a smoking gun ashley lyle all but admits this joke inspired the show uh new york times interviewed both the co-creators ashley lyle and bert nickerson in 2021 ashley lyle says uh, ashley lyle who looks just like teenage shauna by the way creepily (laughs) she says four years ago Ashley Lyle read an article in the trades about a planned remake of William Golding's Lord of the Flies. The 1954 boys gone wild classic about a prep school lads who are stranded on an Island. The version would gender swap girls for boys. Lyle, a writer and producer read the comments, many of them skeptical that girls would descend into such barbarism on a video call from the Los Angeles home that she shares with her husband and producing partner, Bart Nickerson Lyle recalled one man's comment, which read, what are they going to do? Collaborate to death?
0: I'm shaking my head.
1: And she recalled what she immediately thought in response. You were never a teenage girl, sir.
0: Teenage girl's barbarism looks very different. There's not enough time to go into it. But whoever wrote that is stupid.
1: Just wrong. Right. And this article does kind of get at the passive aggressive element of Yellow jackets, as well as how horrible a group of teenage girls might be. But Lyle, this is still the New York Times. Lyle was a teenage girl. She remembers that time vividly, describing the relationship she formed then as probably the most important of my life. She also remembers how ferocious those relationships could be. Quote, there was a girl in my high school who poisoned another girl's food for fun.
0: I feel like I read about or I saw a TikTok or something. There was a girl. You know how there's... Bama Rush, that documentary coming out soon on HBO. Mm-hmm. It will probably already be out. Cult-y, by, yeah, yeah, by the time this episode drops. So Bama Rush is all about like the truly culty and racist and classist, Deeply racist, yeah, sorority system at University of Alabama. And this one girl goes on TikTok and she shows a picture of herself, like a few years prior and she's a little heavier
1: god forbid
0: yeah present day this girl is a little thinner she talks about her experience rushing at university of alabama and how she was basically like put in the least desirable sorority and then left after a bunch of horrible things happen um i think she was like unable to pay the extremely high fees because, like, her father got sick. My point is, even outside of the sorority system, like, just living with regular roommates... A girl that she actually thought was, a fr- like, a close friend and roommate, like, tried to poison her. Or, I, or this might have happened, like, within the sorority system. I'm getting it mixed up. But someone tried to actually poison her because she, like, had a... A really bad food allergy. And then, Jesus. and then her roommate, this I remember, um, her roommate, like, who already had a dog, didn't want this girl to get another dog, but the girl gets a dog or a, a pet, and then they poison the pet. Jesus and then the Christ. pet, the dog dies. And this is what I'm left with from Bama Rush. So, yeah. So it's like there's plausible deniability because the girl who made the TikTok can't prove exactly <laughs> that that she was poisoned and her pet was poisoned. But this is like a mm. prime example.
1: There's da- there's a lot of smoke.
0: Is a prime example of how horrible girls can be to each other.
1: And this is also reminiscent of Sofia Coppola's first short film called Lick the Star, where a bunch of high school girls try to poison the boys in their class with rat poison. Sofia Coppola's films, uh, specifically The Virgin Suicides, was a big style touchpoint for Yellow Jackets as they were building the show. From the jump, Yellow Jackets drew comparisons, not only to Lord of the Flies, but to another famous Lost in the Woods, Lost in the Wild show. Well, Lost. I am the first person to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely hate Lost. I watched okay. it all during the pandemic, <laughs> and I hated every single episode. You... Yes, even the constant. I fucking hate <laughs> every single episode of Lost.
0: You didn't watch it when it was originally on?
1: No, it wasn't. I think I was in college, and so we didn't have... We had TV, but I think we were just like not. It was not like our watching thing. TV. Yeah, we weren't. Yeah. We weren't watching TV. Did you watch Lost when it was out?
0: So I was also in college, right. and so I didn't watch it when it was first on. But they were airing every. So when I graduated from college, I was extremely underemployed because sure. it was the Great Recession, and I was I just graduated from college. Ah,
1: and, the, first uh, yeah, the first Great Recession.
0: The first Great Recession, and I remember watching. I caught up on abc dot com because they mm-hmm. were streaming every episode there and then I started watching it in real time and shout out friend of the pod Megan Costello at the time I was living in San Francisco and she was like basically the only person my only good friend in San Francisco and so she used to have me over her house like
1: cause she For, would like, host, Lost yeah, nights, yeah
0: she would host these like elaborate lost parties
1: when I was in grad school I had a bunch of friends who were very very interested in Lost and, and some of the they were partaking in a lot of the and undergrad actually friend of the show Eleanor Kagan who I, who I mentioned before on this podcast, and who yelled at me about it was a big lost person. My friends Rob Hackett and Andrew Bumstead were like constantly debating what the timelines meant, and I was just like, I fucking wrote it out, <laughs> and everyone famously knows that the the lost finale is divisive or disappointing or whatever you want to call it. And I was just like, felt so vindicated. And then during the pandemic, clearly. You know, during lockdown, there was nothing to do, and I, I, uh, at the behest of my fiance Leanne, watched all of it, and it was atrocious.
0: I don't think it's held up particularly well. Um, I think that the first, maybe the first couple of seasons, looking back, probably are still very entertaining. Nope, you're shaking your head. Um,
1: I the first, <laughs> I like, like we could make this a podcast okay, yeah. about how much I hate lockdown. You can <laughs> okay. email us. You can find us on social media. We're at the InSync pod everywhere on social media. And I will tell you, I'll give you an essay about how the, even the first episode of lost, which everyone says is the best pilot of any TV show ever. Basically.
0: I disagree with that, is but bad. I think it's a good pilot. Um, well,
1: it wasn't a good enough pilot to not crash the plane.
0: <laughs> I knew that you were going to go there. Like even, <laughs> before, even before you said it, I was like, this is a good place to go. But um,
1: <laughs> However, I do like yellow jackets and the similarities are myriad. They're lost in the wilderness. There are time jumps. We're starting to get alternate timelines. And although I think that's just someone fantasizing due to starvation, there's a mysterious symbol. There might be some supernatural intervention.
0: There might be some time travel.
1: Might be some time travel. Bart and Ashley, the creators, I feel like we're on a first name basis with them now. Uh, They were interviewed by CNN and said that the comparison was an honor quote, this is actually Lyle's quote, it's still in the cultural conversation. It was a seminal show, so how you could ever be offended by being compared to a show like that is a mystery to me. Nickerson agreed, saying the comparison is definitely an honor, and adding that they're huge fans of the series, which ran from 2004 to 2010. But, while Lost and Yellow Jackets are strikingly similar, both shows deal with the plane crash and Uncharted Territories, Timelines, etc. Nickerson said they're unequivocally different shows. So in an interview on the incredible Dead Eyes podcast, Lost writer and showrunner Damon Lindelof said that ABC was constantly stopping them from providing answers to the mysteries of the show. So, Rachel, you watched Lost. I did. How do you feel this show departs from Lost? What are the similarities? What are the differences?
0: It's funny because Lost is so in the background of my TV memory at this Mm -hmm. point that didn't even occur to me to make that comparison truth be told really I was I was probably more thinking of shows like castaway or not show but the, like movie, you know, like, yeah. like the movie like castaway or uh, I never saw this film but alive where a male soccer team I believe is stranded in the wilderness and is
1: it goes great for them
0: forced into cannibalism and so I think I was thinking more of film than tv truth be told that being said I see the connection, especially with the supernatural element and the, is it, is it not? Is it trauma? Is it something, something more, Um something unexplained? But, and this has been like the most common, I'm, I'm not, re- I'm not really saying anything original here, but I think like the main complaint that lost Drew over time was that there were no, like the answers when they came were ridiculous and like yes, un- like nonsensical, and that Extremely. they were the writers are just making it up as they went along, and they were basically like because I think with a really great show like that that that's a mystery at its heart. Mm-hmm. You need to work backwards by storytelling. So you need to like internally already have the answers for the mystery and then write from there. So you yeah. need to be working towards that answer. I don't know. if I don't remember if Reddit was a thing then.
1: There were message boards. There were message, tons yeah. of message boards.
0: I mean, I, I know that there were theories, but I feel like the theories are a little bit more like mapped out. Because Yellow Jackets is planned from a more specific and tighter place.
1: I agree with all of that. And the moments of the show that where it veers closer to Lost or it gets more into the supernatural are the moments where I start to get my like the hairs on the back of my neck stand up in a bad way where I'm like, don't do this to me again. <laughs> because I feel uh, like that is the very common Everyone knows that, you know, J.J. Abrams walked into ABC and lied, saying that he knew how Lost was going to end. Yeah. But there is another element to that in an interview on the incredible Dead Eyes podcast. We're going to have Connor on the show one day. Lost writer and showrunner Damon Lindelof said that ABC was constantly stopping them from providing answers to the mysteries of the show because they had a 24 episode season. And once they started answering the mysteries, the show would be over. That combined with the last writer's strike in 2007, which incidentally was when Ashley Lyle and Bart Nickerson moved to LA to be TV writers. For me, this all combines to... Causing significantly more than half of lost 121 episodes to be just treading water. There's episodes in season one where they just decide to build a golf course. There's so and much filler. There's so much filler, and and you know I I credit the writers for a lot of stuff because I am at heart a writer, and I also denigrate the writers for maybe a lot of stuff that wasn't their fault. So episodes like the filler episodes. The writers knew that there were filler episodes. They just had to hit their episode quota. Well, we don't make mm. TV like that anymore. Mm-hmm. If Yellow Jackets did 121 episodes, that would translate to 13 seasons. Yeah. Teenage Shauna would be as old as adult Shauna by the end of it.
0: I know there's a lot of debate, especially because we're recording this during the writer strike and there's been a lot of debate over like a fewer amount of episodes versus a greater amount of episodes for, like and how much networks are willing to spend but mm-hmm. in this case the yellow jackets is served well by having a shorter run because um, it's it's just tighter
1: and and the idea of doing 121 episodes of yellow jackets sounds ridiculous
0: for everyone involved i think
1: yeah for everyone involved
0: can i ask you a quick question yes first of all have you seen the leftovers
1: I have not seen the leftovers. I am very mixed on Damon Lindelof. Let me tell you.
0: I used to, okay, well, first I want to tell you how I used to, when I worked at the recording academy in Santa Monica, I used to walk to a coffee shop every now and then and like I'd walk out like through the back parking lot uh behind the buildings to get to this coffee shop and I would pass Damon Lindelof's parking spot because it had his name.
1: Oh amazing.
0: And I would just kind of like always check it to see if there was a car parked there. What kind of car does drive? No one was ever parked in that spot, but it was there. And <laughs> uh, anyway, you should you should watch the leftovers
1: I've uh, heard it's very good.
0: The first season is you have to be in a strong mental space to watch it, but season two, season three is so worth it. So worth it. Just maybe don't binge it because of the strong mental play oh, statement. The I just, yeah, the the, it's, yeah. It's, it's really like the pilot episode is one of the most emotionally wrought Pilot episodes of any TV show that I think I've ever seen. So
1: I'll, I'll tell you, I was one hundred percent negative on Damon Lindelof for a long time because I didn't. I just chose not to watch Lost. But uh, the the Alien movie he wrote, Prometheus, is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life.
0: One day we're gonna have to talk about Prometheus because I secretly like it. You
1: secretly like it? Oh I mean, my I God.
0: know, I know it's not good. It's just entertaining. It's yeah. so silly. <laughs>
1: It's. Uh, it I was so bad that it got him bullied off of Twitter. Yeah,
0: I don't. I don't take it like as canon. Sure. But
1: why wouldn't you?
0: I just. I don't. I don't know. I saw it in the theater. I was entertained. I knew it was dumb. It
1: was so bad. I
0: don't know. It's like how when I, whenever fear comes on TV, I have to watch it. It's a fear very, is excellent. It's a very similar feeling.
1: Yeah, Prometheus is the fear of the alien franchise is a, is a real bold statement, uh, in sync exclusive. And then I watched the Watchmen show because I really like the Watchmen. Um, and no one could do it worse than Zack Snyder. Mm. And, um, and I liked that quite a bit. And then I heard his interview on Dead Eyes and I was like, well, maybe it's not all his fault. Um, and so I, I'm warming, I'm warming to Damon Lindelof.
0: I think that you would become a fan if you watched The Leftover. It's like, it's, I wouldn't compare it to Lost, but like, think about if Damon Lindelof, like, had full creative control and, like, didn't have to answer to ABC execs.
1: Well, let's hope, man. Yeah. But the, the showrunners, Nickerson Lyle and Jonathan Lisko are, are also concerned about a lackluster finale, the showrunners of, of Yellow Jackets. So they know that they're being compared to Lost and they're like, well, we shouldn't end like that this is from cnn not everything will have a concrete explanation but i think that anything that can will this is ashley lyle she said there are things in life for which there will never be a concrete explanation and i think that's something that we are also looking to explore jonathan lisko said that the writing team will quote have to follow our instincts when it comes to explaining things and to what extent this doesn't put me at ease rachel
0: because you need things to be explained.
1: I need I need to know that they know.
0: Okay. Um I think that they know, but I also think that they're like going back and forth between knowing and Wanting to stay in the trauma versus supernatural gray zone, sure, which is such a major theme of the show.
1: The longer that they can ride that gray zone, the better. The I think one of the one of the failures of Lost is they, they have like a smoke monster in the second episode. Like like we know that there are all bets are off. <laughs> so I think that staying in that gray zone is a smart rule. Lisco also says as an audience member, just to put ourselves in the shoes of the audience for a second, we don't want to be frustrated and overly manipulated. We want answers, too. So I'm um, put slightly at ease. I think that they might know. But much like Lost, viewers are constantly looking for clues to unlock the mystery. And so I'd like to reward some of the folks who are caught up on Yellow Jackets for sitting through our explainer with some talk about the future and maybe some clues that you, Rachel, have noticed and some clues that I have noticed.
0: Okay. Uh, You know what? I feel like I am not a great person to talk to about clues. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. (laughs) Because, well... First of all, being like in detective mode while watching TV yeah. is stressful for me. <laughs> Why? Because I get very caught up in the story and the characters. Yeah, you're and in the moment. Right? I'm in I'm very in the moment when I'm watching something like Yellow Jackets. And I do like to think ahead and be like, oh, like they did it mm-hmm. or that thing wasn't there before. Like some like it's like I it's not like I don't notice, but I don't like to be in that mode. Um I, instead, after I've watched an episode, I like to read recaps, particularly like on Vulture. Vulture's great. Or go to like on Reddit. If I'm like, I'm really invested in something that the writer brought up on the Vulture. Uh, Vulture has a good post, Yellow Jackets explainer where they're like our spooky, sexy, scary, uh, Yellow Jackets theories. And yeah. I, I, they're, Honestly, I just kind of get, like, lost in that because they always notice things that, like, I didn't notice. I think I've talked to you before about how I'm a little bit gullible. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> a slightly gullible person. And that's why I fact check so hard on everything.
1: <laughs> so as a gullible person, do yeah. you believe Lottie's account of the events of what happened to Travis?
0: Mm, I do. Oh,
1: oddly. Interesting.
0: I believe that Lottie believes, like, I don't think she's necessary. well, I think there's definitely some darker purpose to, like, the purple people. Sure. Because, there, I mean, there has to be. I don't think anything good can come from... From,
1: from give us your phones, you can't leave.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't think anything good can come from, like, a group of people who've, like, agreed to just live by a screed. That, that's, like, nothing good can come from that. That being said, leaders like, in her position, they have told themselves there and other people their narrative so much that, like, they believe their
1: shit. Oh, I think Lottie believes that she is... Yeah. ...divine.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. that being said, I think the parts of Lottie that are, like, deceptive, I'm not sure if she's even aware of until it's too late.
1: A la what happens in episode seven.
0: You read my mind. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I wanted to talk about a little bit of a metatextual analysis because this is like my wheelhouse, the thing that I'm like very comfortable talking about, which is when we meet adult Van, she's working in like a VHS video store in 2023, which is like, okay, Van, I'm sure that business is going great for you. But I want to talk about the placement of certain movies on the video shelves and what they might mean for the overall plot of the show. So there is a intense interaction about Lottie as van is stacking or like right in front of a VHS box for a movie called the Fisher King. Have you ever heard of the Fisher King?
0: I have, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it.
1: It's great. It's about a guy played by Robin Williams who after experiencing a trauma starts hallucinating that he is a knight of the realm in like King Arthur's court mm-hmm. and has to defeat the black knight who is coming for him. So this, to me, very clearly mirrors Lottie's descent into like hallucinatory, you know, feeling mm-hmm. like you're you know mm-hmm. divine, touched mm-hmm. by God. An- another one, a quick one is that Van recommends to one of her customers to watch Watermelon Woman, which is a mid nineties indie movie about a lesbian who works in a video store. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this is, this is what tipped me off to that. There is a reason for these things. Mm -hmm. And the last one I want to talk about, which I think I don't quite have the full understanding of yet is that there is a sunset Boulevard poster, not only at the front desk of the video store, but also in van's, like apartment in her house. yeah. Hmm. And so Sunset Boulevard is David Lynch's favorite movie. Mm. He named one of his characters in Twin Peaks after a character in Sunset Boulevard. And it's about a woman whose career has passed her by and she becomes delusional that she's meant for greatness and she's going to star in a remake or a first time make of the opera slash play Salome. She refers to it as Salome. Hmm. And so I don't know what this is quite about just yet other than you've got this kind of past prime woman who's delusional maybe is lottie maybe oh, is
0: careful hell you say past your prime don lemon
1: that's true but this is like part of the plot right. of the movie is that the world is <laughs> no, past her,
0: i'm just never going to hear that phrase the same way ever again i'm i'm not i'm not taking she's this, over just, the
1: hill yeah. she's 35 <laughs> Um, no, no, she's like, uh, she was a yeah. silent movie actor and and she mm. couldn't transition to talkies.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it is one of the best movies ever made. It is, it is unbelievably good. And there's also like a weird dead animal in it that I don't really want to get too far into. And like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it kind of, that does some flashback stuff. It opens with like the main character dead in a the pool. There are connections, but I want to know what it means. <laughs> I don't yet.
0: I mean, I'm fixating on the David Lynch element.
1: Well, there is more than just this David Lynch connection to talk about today. Yeah. After season one, Barton Ashley admitted to cruising Reddit and looking at fan theories of what was going to happen. Oh,
0: yeah, I saw that.
1: And I can only hope that they're listening and they can give us an answer to the Sunset Boulevard question. The musical moments in Yellow Jackets are to behold. And season two is even better than season one. The first season had over 50 needle drops from 90s period songs and modern usages. And the theme song, No Return, which was written specifically for the show by Anna Waronker and mm-hmm. Craig Wedron. Yeah. Like many viewers, I was convinced that it was from a Riot Girl band that I didn't know.
0: I, I was too. Uh,
1: and I compulsively shazammed it at the beginning of every episode. And like Googling lyrics. And this was before it even made it onto the internet. I was like, what the fuck is this song? It's amazing. Yeah. Craig Wedron was in an alt rock band in the 80s and 90s called Shudder to Think. Until the writing of this episode, I was unfamiliar with that band. They sound a little bit like the Toadies meets Marcy Playground. And Anna Waranker was in a band called That Dog, which I had also never heard of. Yeah. But about writing the song, Waranker told Pitchfork, it was like, Radiohead and David Lynch made a theme song. There you go. So our Radiohead needle drop of the day seems kind of like an inevitable moment. And we also have this additional David Lynch connection. The theme song itself is a bit like a snake eating its own tail. The Ouroboros. Uh, (laughs) Singer-songwriter and 90s queen Alanis Morissette recorded and released a new cover version of No Return, which plays at the top of... Episode four of season two, and that's it. Alanis told Variety, quote, I love the original version of No Return. It's just a perfect song. Hard agree. Uh, It was a little daunting to be asked to reinterpret it, but I see parallels between Yellowjackets and my perspective while songwriting. The sheer intensity, that going for the jugular with no fear around, going for the profane. She added, I've strived my entire career to support the empowerment of women and sensitives and see the world through the female lens. And what's so wonderful about this show is that each character is allowed to be dynamic and complex as opposed to oversimplified and a reduced version of women.
0: This kind of mirrors our conversation about Bitch a few I agree. episodes back. Yep. Which,
1: is, which is, I have to stress, not an Alanis Morissette song.
0: <laughs> no. Shout out Meredith Brooks.
1: Shout out Meredith Brooks. Yeah. You're a real and one. And
0: Shelley Peakin, who co-wrote the song. Correct.
1: Yes. But every, every time I hear Bitch, I have to remind myself that it's not Alanis. The re-record of the song is basically the same with a slightly different mix and Alanis vocals, but the this song fucks. The song is so good.
0: Uh, yeah, it's the kind of title sequence that you just never want to hit skip on. Yeah, yeah you just want to watch it all the way through.
1: We are going to maybe do like a, one day like a top 10 title sequences episode, and this one is is very up there for me. Yeah. Other season two needle drops include Papa Roach. The
0: Papa Roach needle drop, like... I was so close to trying to twist your arm to just make the whole episode. About the, I, I, about, probably, yeah. I
1: wouldn't, it wouldn't have taken much twisting.
0: Like these characters are in real life meant to be
1: mm, like five years, five older than years we are. old. Five years old. Yeah.
0: Like in there, they are like well into their early forties. And, but even so, when I heard like the Papa Roach needle drop, any, basically like any song that, might have been popular like 1999 and on. I'm starting to hear and this is also the case for beef, which has a great needle drop. Uh, Well, there are a lot of great needle drops within beef like there's like Bush's glycerin or machine head.
1: Machine head is such a great song for a needle drop
0: and an incubus's drive so we're getting to this age now where
1: we're the boomers now
0: all the middle-aged characters mm-hmm. in all the prestige dramas are going through their midlife crises even though i was led to believe that our generation isn't capable of having a midlife crisis because um we haven't <laughs> like if a midlife crisis is about having everything you've ever wanted and then being yeah, sad that. that's like not our story
1: but we're the first generation with the quarter life crisis Basis, which that's
0: true. I digress. So many of these shows are using these songs from middle school for us. Yeah. And this is making me turn to dust like on a yeah. daily basis. And that that is that's the end of that rant.
1: For context, the Papa Roach needle drop is very brief. And it's when Shauna's cuckolded husband and Jackie's ex-boyfriend, Jeff, is like angry in his car and he turns on some like pump up music and it's Last Resort by Papa Roach, which adds to the weird, dark comedy of the show. The show is funny, as funny as a show about like people starving in the woods and potentially eating each other can be. And yet it like tells you exactly who this person is, too.
0: Because he is like a Jim Doof
1: yeah do you remember those pictures of like paul ryan former house majority leader paul ryan like <laughs> pumping iron i do and like, actually my yeah. favorite band is rage against the machine and tomerell was like never talk about us you people, yeah. <laughs> <shit."
0: laughs> keep my wife's name out of your mouth
1: yeah. yeah we also have four non-blondes punctuating adult vans arrival we have staying alive which is used in a really interesting context in episode five as its intended cpr song Right. You're supposed staying alive is like the right number of beats per minute to do CPR to. And Ah, yeah, and and there's like a sound alike in the Elijah Woods car stereo, which leads me to believe that they couldn't get the rights to the actual staying alive.
0: They didn't use like some theatery version of it. Isn't he like really into show tunes?
1: Is there a theater version? What like did they do a fucking Saturday Night Fever the musical? I
0: don't. Know, I, I honestly have to go back and, and double yeah. check that. I, I kind of like blacked out while they were like doing the theater stuff. Doing the theater stuff yeah. because yeah, I just can't. I,
1: <laughs> I think you're right that it's we're led to believe that it's like some theatrical version of it. But I yeah. was unfamiliar that if that existed. We also have Sparks Angst in My Pants, which is an incredible song, and I highly recommend the Sparks documentary the sparks brothers hmm. blur song too when shauna finally gives birth to her baby Elliot smith nirvana's something in the way which is really having a second life thanks to its inclusion in batman oh yeah in the movie the batman one of those is correct uh, The batman the batman a musical performance by john cameron mitchell playing an anthropomorphized parrot
0: caligula
1: caligula And very notably, Lightning Crashes by Live. Without spoiling anything, Lightning Crashes is a great sync for this show in this moment, because it's about one life ending and another life beginning. And it's also very commonly misinterpreted as a song about an abortion or a baby otherwise dying for a really deep dive on live and lightning crashes. You can check out an episode of my other show. Lyrics for lunch.
0: Nice cross promotion.
1: Thank you. But very Rachel, good. you talked to live. You I talked did. to Ed Kowalczyk of live.
0: I did. Yeah. This was like five years ago, I guess at this point, which
1: it's like wow because numerous lawsuits ago.
0: <laughs> I talked to Ed in 2018. If you want, you can read that interview on Stereogum.com and he, nice I, cross promotion. I, thank you. I remember him being like very nice. He was cool. That was a good one. I like this was around. When uh, I was working at uh, CBS.com, which is now Paramount Plus, many name changes later, and my writing on CBS did not come with a byline or anything. So my uh, lovely editor, shout out, Scott Lapentine, friend of the pod, uh, was kind enough to throw me interviews of that ilk at the time. And, and now you can read my writing there every day.
1: That's Excellent. For for this podcast, Lyrics for Lunch, I do a lot of research into like news articles and stories behind famous songs. And I have pulled Rachel's articles without knowing it. Like, I
0: love when that happens. A couple times. It's because I own the internet.
1: Yeah. I personally think that the music in season two is significantly better than in season one. This could be for a couple of reasons. One is that they have more money now that the show is a hit. But there is another reason.
0: They did switch music supervisors.
1: So... Can you talk a little bit about how that happened?
0: Well, I didn't find in any. There may be some like context out there as to uh, how Nora Felder came in and Jen Malone left. But I want to note that Jen Malone is certainly no slouch as a music supervisor. She worked on Euphoria and Wednesday. I believe it is Jen Malone. We have to thank for Goo Goo Muck making it in to Wednesday.
1: Yeah. And to clarify, like, I don't think that the music in season one is bad, but I was just like blown away by the, the, the we were. It was really an embarrassment of riches for us as we were trying to figure out what song to talk about today.
0: Truly. But I think it's really worth quickly talking about Nora Felder. Speaking of working backward, when we started this show, I was probably less familiar with some of like the biggest names in music supervision it only has to do with like my love for the songs themselves and the placements and never really being in the position to like do the research of like, well, who, and, and and for me, like this show is kind of part of that. Like let's deep dive into the supervisor. So I
1: think that they don't get enough credit. Like that's not just your fault. Like I think the industry does not give these people enough credit.
0: Totally. And Nora She's a force. I mean, according to her IMDb bio, she started booking artist showcases in New York in like downtown clubs, ranging from The Cure to In Excess. So we're talking like some...
1: So a couple of unknown bands.
0: Yeah, some high caliber 80s bands. And later she worked as a VP of production for Phil Ramone. And then it looks like in the 90s, she moved from New York to LA and her first project, first film project was Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, which completely blew
1: my mind. We're going to do an episode on Romy and Michelle.
0: Someday uh, I'll talk to her about that. I'm putting yeah. it out there. and I'm manifesting it because that's one of my favorite music movies and just movies in general of all time. And in addition to Romy and Michelle, Nora has worked on Showtime's Californication – stranger things she is who we have to thank for the big kate bush running up that hill summer 2022 moment any show based in a nostalgized era and has already proven its success with like the first season and then everything that cut or some of what comes later is like fan service then you're going to want to really, like, lean harder into the things that worked the first season.
1: Yeah. And she's the LeBron. She's the Jordan yeah. of this particular thing.
0: Yeah. She also worked on What We Do in the Shadows on uh, FX. Ray Donovan, the OA, Better Things, Baskets, for Stranger Things. Nora won the Emmy for Outstanding Music Supervision at the 2022 Creative Arts Emmys. Totally makes sense. Like, she's a baller.
1: Yeah, she's, she's incredible. And this also probably answers the money question too, which is that they have the money to go after the best of the, this show got so many accolades and so much acclaim and so much attention that they could get the top talent in both the musicians and also the music supervisor. As I mentioned before the series opens with one of the second string yellow jackets being hunted, killed and eaten.
0: Pit Girl is her
1: Pit Girl, right? Is
0: currently her name. Yeah.
1: <laughs> is Pit Girl the girl that looks like Lottie that's like obsessed with Lottie?
0: Okay, that's what people think. That's,
1: I think that that's, that's her, my right?
0: that's my run like theory and my theory will be answered in a week probably after the show. Yeah goes
1: live. So in the screenwriting context, this is a a promise, right? This is a plant. This is Chekhov's gun. uh, And the the specter of cannibalism is ever present in the show. Season one's journalist character, while talking to adult Shauna, even says something to the effect of, so you ate some people. What's the big deal? Um, However, we don't catch up to or get any context for any cannibalism until Jackie, after a fight with Shauna, teen Shauna, freezes to death in the snow The show blue balls, the audience for over a year, but finally in season two, episode two, while trying to cremate Jackie's remains, the yellow jackets accidentally, well, cook her from vulture. The sequence has a carousing quality cutting between the exhausted and shivering teens feasting on Jackie's steaming body and a fantasy in which they're clad as Greco Roman revelers, dining at an opulent table so we have this huge montage between i think some stuff in the present day plus the yellow jackets like ravenously eating this human being plus this kind of tableau of greco-roman like you know feasting on grapes and wine and fruits what the fuck does this mean could it have something to do with Salome, who serves up the head of John the Baptist on a platter in the play? I don't That's,
0: know. That sounds as good a theory
1: as, as any, or right.
0: interpretation as any, definitely.
1: It's also worth noting that Misty's African gray parrot is named Caligula. Yeah. Back to Vulture. The show's co-runner, Jonathan Lisko, who wrote the episode, says... Shauna's eulogy for Jackie is very brief. And that line, I don't even know where you end and I begin, feels like a grim nod to their friendship and a wink to the fact that Shauna ate Jackie's ear in a episode called Friends, Romans, Countrymen. As in Friends, Romans, Countrymen, lend Lend me me your your ears. And it's also, you know, a Julius Caesar thing, like we're all all of the Greek stuff is kind of coalescing. Going a little further, Midsommar came up as a reference point, how that movie was haunting and riveting. We coupled that with this idea that the teens probably would have had all taken world history and studied ancient Greece at this point. To consume Jackie, they had to get themselves there, and it served two functions, cutting back and forth, that is, served two functions. We don't shy away from the gruesome, but we also don't want to be gratuitous about it. It's funny because people say that the show is so brutal, and I want to be clear that we never set out to be salacious or sensational. We have to objectively render some of what they're going through because that's truthful. But at the same time, this gave us an opportunity to add an extra element of mass hallucination that they needed to collectively protect themselves from this horror. Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, we wanted to have an element of hedonism involved, because if you're starving in the woods and you're eating your friend, yeah, that's not a good thing. But you have to, at some biological level, feel sated. And that has to feel good. So when they're shoving figs and pomegranates and mutton and whatever in each other's mouths, and it gets into a really histrionic state, we thought that that was a thing of beauty, and the audience would get it on many levels. One, that it was a self-protective mechanism that they all had to engage in, and two, that it was sort of beyond reason, and three, that it was almost libidinous, like quasi-erotic, hedonistic experience, and four, that they were actually having the most harrowing and traumatic experience of their lives. Speaking of libidinous and quasi erotic, there's a moment when Van and Ty are like kissing mm-hmm. through a bite of fruit in the Bacchanal. Kissing through a bite of fruit, which is presumably like a bite of Jackie during the Bacchanal, what the yeah. what is referred you ate to her now face. As, you <laughs> ate her face. So what is your take on this moment?
0: I think that this is a prime example of Shifting between, like, how do you interpret what's happening? To what extent are they hallucinating because they are hungry Mm -hmm. and they mentally have to protect themselves from this horrific thing that they're doing in order to survive? So trauma versus entity in the possible entity in the woods Um, transporting them that has um, yeah made them appear different and they're living they're sort of dressed in an elevated way which I thought reflected like in the pilot episode there's like a ritualistic element to what the whole group are doing and especially Lottie as the antler queen potentially potentially so I think that it kind of like moves back and forth between what could be happening versus what is actually happening and how we're never really sure.
1: I I think that that is completely accurate. And of course is like, there's no way to know. And I, and I definitely feel Jonathan Lisko's, like what he's saying, right? Especially number three, this like quasi erotic, hedonistic experience that is then being kind of match cut with this, this Caligula esque Bacchanal. The one thing I'll say is that this kind of harkens back to like early Soviet cinema where Mm. Sergei Eisenstein, Lev Kuleshov like created some of these, like the idea of like montage where you didn't have to have a direct, connection between the cuts but the cuts were just like vibes right so like you would see uh there's a great movie called the general line which is about like russian orthodox people thinking that jesus is going to come back on the top of a mountain and it shows the worshipers worshiping this false idol and then like candles dripping and goats bleeding and uh bleeding with a T, tea and it's just the vibes of these people are like being led as sheep and i think that these cuts are similar where there isn't really a logic to it and there doesn't have to be it is this totally vibe based this is how we're this is how they feel this is how we want you to feel and i think this might be an example of one of those things that ashley lyle says sometimes are just left as a mystery
0: did you ever watch the american's
1: no, I never watched the oh, I know that this is like I've a thing this. about this show. I've asked
0: you this before. I know. I think. But well, all I want to say is that um when asked to describe what the Americans were about, like the showrunners basically just said, This is a show about family. Uh, right. And I think when you pull out a bit, like in the same in a similar way, to look at like a bird's eye view for the like yellow jackets, it's just a show about high school like a group of high school girls or just high school yeah so jackie who pre getting lost in the woods was uh, like popular a leader and you know everyone loved her but also kind of secretly hated her because she was just so perfect and like there's there's a lot i think also to dig into with like high school being a a dog-eat-dog dog kind of environment.
1: Mm-hmm. And they're consuming the, the prom queen or whatever.
0: Yeah, so it's like a weird wish fulfillment of, like, eating your frenemy. Yeah. But also wanting to be your frenemy and a mixture of emotions and... I I
1: don't even know where you end and I begin.
0: Right, exactly. It harkens back to that line. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was thinking about, too, like the most while watching this, like how deeply high school it is. It's just like like this literal take of uh, high school dynamics.
1: And that, to me, is the true essence of Lord of the Flies, too, right? Where where it's about what it means to be, in, in the original novel, what it means to be a man. Right, mm. an adult in the in the contemporary era of which it was taken. This is like the same, right? It's like, what does it mean to be a human being? Are you this base animal who will eat your f- best friend, or are you this elevated Roman? You know, whatever.
0: So I guess uh, Coach Scott is it?
1: Is Coach his Scott, Ben Scott, yeah. Ben
0: Scott, Coach Ben Scott is a Roman because he does not partake.
1: Right. I guess so, right? He's got he's on his own trip, man. This poor guy.
0: Yeah, we'll have to see.
1: Yeah, we'll have to <laughs> see. Um Lisco finishes this statement by saying one of the things about season two that we're really excited about is that this eating of Jackie is the least transgressive thing that they may do. Their choices are gonna get more morally ambiguous as the season progresses and they're gonna to have to decide who they are and integrate their worst impulses into themselves which is like i think very clearly emblematic thaisa is very emblematic of that integrating your worst self into
0: she's the living example of. she's that. the
1: living example of that right yeah of course the song played during the banquet is is Radiohead's Climbing Up the Walls, our Sink of the Week. And when we come back, we'll discuss how this OK Computer deep cut became the perfect song for this Greco-Roman cannibalistic Bacchanal.
0: So let's uh, dig a bit into Climbing Up the Walls. Radiohead really need no introduction, I think, for a lot of these... Band and song deep dives in the episode. I've talked about the band history. I don't think that we need to do that here since Radiohead is just one of those bands. Uh, that said, Climbing Up the Walls, this slow burning, mid tempo, mildly experimental rock song that is a deep cut on OK Computer, heavy focus on Tom York's falsetto, which is very eerie sounding. And the album itself, OK Computer, came out in June 1997.
1: Interesting that even though it is, I guess it would be a slightly anachronistic because we're probably in the early months of 1997.
0: I was thinking about that.
1: But it's a non-diegetic song. It's like very, very close.
0: Yes. So I was actually thinking about what on the show would be the IRL timing, because at this point, the... Girls are stranded in what? Like the spring of 96.
1: Yeah. Shauna is two months or so pregnant when they crash. Mm. And Mm -hmm. now she's about eight months pregnant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been about six months. So, yeah. Spring, summer of 96.
0: Right. And now it's. Yeah, sure. On the calendar year. This song isn't technically out yet; their characters wouldn't be aware of it, but we have the close audience, enough, yeah, it's close enough, so climbing up the walls is not technically an album single, but it is a much loved and much discussed track from this album, and i I think it's worth talking a bit about like its history it's filled with mixed ambient sounds like i started picturing a listener like swatting the air around them like like there's nothing there but they feel like there's something there because of the way the song is mixed
1: yes 100% yes yeah
0: the the string section is composed by johnny greenwood of course uh who has gone on to compose music scores for just just a a ton of great movies. Yeah. So this score was written for 16 instruments and it was inspired by the modern classical composer, Christoph Penderecki's avant-garde Theranody.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, man.
0: (laughs) Theranody to the victims of Hiroshima. This song originally came out in 1961. Speaking to the guardian in 1997, Johnny said, I got very excited at the prospect of doing string parts that didn't sound like the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby, which is what all string parts have sounded like for the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As for the lyrics, Tom York drew from his experience working as an orderly in a mental hospital during the care in the community policy in the UK of uh, deinstitutionalizing mental health patients. I found that really interesting because this sounded before I researched it. I was like, "Well, this sounds very Thatcher."y
1: It, it certainly and does. It's,
0: it, it is key Margaret Thatcher policy, and if you know anything about Thatcher, she's uh, well, she was the best was, prime
1: minister that Britain ever had.
0: Yeah, I mean, she was a very polarizing figure in UK politics. As Prime Minister, her whole thing was she's just very bootstrappy, which sounds like just another Tuesday in the United States, but in the UK and um, Europe as a whole, and I'm talking about like pre Brexit Europe, there are a lot more social systems in place and historically have been. And so to deinstitutionalize the country. In that way, they basically she was saying, "Okay, uh, we're gonna just end social services for anyone who is mentally ill and deemed unable to care for themselves, and they're just their families are just gonna have to take care of them."
1: So fun fact: this actually happened in Philadelphia, and there was like a mental institution that just closed down, and they're just like, "Okay, bye!" And then everyone was just like left wandering the streets.
0: Yeah. uh, So this this was not a popular. Policy Probably doesn't even need to be said. But (laughs) so what Tom York said at the time in a New York Times. So I think he was also drawing on an 80s New York Times article about serial killers as well. And uh, so he says about climbing up the walls. This is about the unspeakable, literally skull crushing. I used to work in a mental hospital around the time that care in the community started and we all just knew what was going to happen, and it 's one of the scariest things to happen in this country because a lot of them weren't just harmless; it was hailing violently when we recorded this song. It seemed to add to the mood with climbing up the walls like they like, just looking at the lyrics there's feelings of like lost innocence, a feeling of desperation. Paranoid feelings of somebody might be watching you, um, secrets that we have, uh, monsters hiding under the bed. And all of these themes are easily connected over to Yellow Jackets as a whole. At this point, the Yellow Jackets themselves have been so isolated from like society that they themselves could be viewed as being at their most base state like if you're animalistic yeah yeah, animalistic like uh i'm gonna compare like a like a prison environment and like a a mental hospital environment i mean i know that they're different but uh these are two environments (laughs) these are two environments where they kind of have like their own rules or perhaps a lack thereof and the laws of civilized society cease to exist and people who live within these environments are just at their most base animalistic selves and it's like what do you do what choices do you make in those scenarios and that's that's kind of how I drew the connections to the themes of the song the idea of like innocence lost being desperate feeling like you're never alone and yet you're more alone than you've ever been this is what I thought about
1: yeah, I completely agree with you. And there are a handful of very direct connections between climbing up the walls and yellow jackets, specifically this, uh, care in the communities program that Tom York says inspired the song. There's like a entire plot point of someone going to a mental institution and maybe being let out a little bit too early. So at the end of the scene, as they are, feasting as we continue to, to watch them feast it starts snowing which turns out to snow them in uh, and trap them into their little cabin for the next few months and even lyrically the song goes it's always best when the covers up i am the pick in the ice don't cry out or hit the alarm you know we're friends till we die which seems like lyrically pretty ominous mm-hmm. and foreshadowing of what is happening on the show
0: perfect you you must be a professor. Or a I teacher. must be a
1: prof- some kind of. Professor. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's the name of your next album.
1: Some kind of guy.
0: <laughs> Why do you think that this works so well for just from a music perspective?
1: So the down tempo is really, really effective because or mid tempo, because if this were a 90s or 2000s moment, you would get this. Really charged up tempo horror y type music and some of the better or best music cues, either, either like needle drops or moments of score are in certain ways ironic to the tone of the piece. There's a great scene in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where joel and clementine are meeting maybe for the first time and the score is only happening while they're talking and then when they stop talking the score stops and so it becomes extremely awkward so it's like the music is almost commenting on the scene there's also a very famous scene in the movie face off where Mm -hmm. Nicolas cage shoots a bunch of people to somewhere over the rainbow which is excellent
0: i've always been afraid to watch face off Oh,
1: face off so good what's
0: well, just the idea of I, I have this phobia around faces being off of people of
1: faces <laughs> well you will guess <laughs> like, what happens in yellow jackets
0: yeah but they don't really like, like are you talking about van
1: van and also like you ate her face
0: yeah but you don't like see it
1: you don't see it yeah you yeah. don't you don't really see it in face off for very long Okay, so (laughs) I think that there is a little bit of that at play where it it feels a little there's like a little extra poetry and and kind of space in the song to allow us to fill it with our own mental horrors. Right. It's like too pretty of a song and it lets the viewer in on the character's mental state, which is like this is a good thing for them, not a horrifying thing.
0: Before we wrap, I want to shout out another use of an OK Computer deep cut, also bringing it back to Lauren Ambrose.
1: And what show would that be from?
0: (laughs) Six Feet Under has a great OK Computer needle drop where Lucky plays also with a fire as the Fisher family create a bonfire out of stuff they couldn't get rid of in a yard sale. And it kind of like marks this changing of the guard in a way. May like, have been
1: cut from our episode, but Thomas Golubich like mentioned that moment in our in our first episode.
0: I yeah, I remember that too now. Yes, and that's actually one of my favorite low key needle drops of all Can time. Can
1: I tell you my favorite Radiohead needle drop?
0: Yes, what is it?
1: It's from Romeo Plus Juliet. <laughs> it's exit music <laughs> from a film, which was written I think specifically for that movie. But it is I one of my top three Radiohead songs. I think it is gorgeous, gorgeous song.
0: Awesome. Speaking to CNN about choosing climbing up the walls for the big cannibalism scene, Nora Felder said, the song seems to refer to those unspeakable monsters that can live in one's head. I can't think of a more perfect way to hauntingly accent that scene, a.k.a. The Feast. In that same interview with CNN, Nora also talked about choosing Papa Roach's Last Resort. Hell yeah. Explaining that that song was scripted and quote, served as a perfect physical outlet for Warren, whose anxious feelings were riding high while sitting alone in his garage. I thought it was just the probably the funniest, like you were saying earlier about how funny that scene it's is. Such a
1: funny moment.
0: And just like watching him rock out and like just beat the shitty minivan seats <laughs> to the beat of last resort, and he means it. There's nothing he, iron- no. There's nothing ironic about his enjoyment of last resort. Nor should there be.
1: Nor should there be.
0: Nor should there be.
1: So Yellow Jackets has become a. Uh, runaway hit for showtime and the show was renewed for season three three months before season two premiered however the writer's room for season three only met for one day in may of 2023 before the writer's strike shut the room down the 2007 writer's strike famously interrupted the fourth season of lost so is history repeating itself or will ashley lyle and bart nickerson and Nora felder be able to break the curse of the strike
0: oh nice full circle thanks I guess we'll have to find out.
1: Thanks for listening. Where can people find us on the internet, Rachel?
0: You can find us wherever the internet is found.
1: (laughs) Wherever on the internet. We're just here.
0: You can find us at The Insync Pod on Twitter, on TikTok, on Facebook whatever on instagram Ram.
1: yeah we have a website it's cool it looks really cool you can listen to all of our episodes
0: do you want to plug your personal uh accounts sure you? yeah
1: i'm on twitter instagram at rambo calrissian rachel's at re Brodsky.
0: re Brods on instagram oh, fuck and I fucked
1: that up sorry
0: you're fine it, it varies i'm at, i'm at rebrods on uh, Instagram and Rachel Brods on Twitter. I am very Googleable. Very, I'm very SEO friendly.
1: I am also quite SEO friendly. Good. It's I E N. And until next time, signing off for the Yellow Jackets. I'm Aviv Rupenstein.
0: I'm Rachel Brodsky. Buzz Buzz. Buzz Buzz. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app.